For WVCW Radio, I'm Fidel Alasan. You're listening to One Credit News, the premier podcast for the latest at VCU. In today's podcast, why activists are calling for justice following the police shooting of an unarmed black man, Marcus David Peters, in Richmond, and two Commonwealth Times journalists on why young people are leaving organized religion. Plus, a preview of VCU men's basketball with Commonwealth Times' Zach Joachim and WVCW's Ben Malikoff. But first... Welcome back. There are a lot of questions heading into this midterm. Well, control of Congress is at stake in the midterm elections less than two weeks from now. As new numbers from battleground districts do show, a remarkably close midterm competition. Virginia is one of many states in the spotlight as the midterm election edges closer and closer. Democrats, who need to pick up 25 seats from Republicans out of the 435 in Congress, are feeling pretty optimistic about the Old Dominion. That's because this year, Democrats seem very likely to keep all their seats in Virginia. And they might even pick up a few from Republicans. CNN's website has a feature which lets you see which races are competitive or leaning one way or another. According to that feature, four Republican-held seats could be in trouble from the GOP standpoint. There's the second district in Virginia Beach, which CNN is calling a toss-up meaning it's too close to predict which way it'll go. That's currently held by Scott Taylor, a 39-year-old former Navy SEAL, and he's running against Elaine Luria, a Democrat who also served in the Navy. Taylor is under scrutiny since a judge found, quote, out-and-out fraud in his campaign. Taylor's staff is said to have gathered signatures for an independent spoiler candidate to be on the ballot in the election. In other words, they helped a third-party candidate get on the ballot, presumably, to undermine Luria's campaign. And now there's a criminal investigation underway. A New York Times and Siena College poll from last week has Taylor leading by about three points. Republican Congressman Dave Brad is in a tight re-election race against Democratic challenger Abigail Spanberger, a former CIA officer. Then there's the seventh district race in Henrico and other parts of Central Virginia, which CNN also calls a toss-up. Congressman Bratt is in the normally safe Republican Virginia district, uh, which he won in 2016 by 15 points. The incumbent there, Dave Bratt, is known for being one of the most conservative members of Congress and heavily aligned with the Tea Party movement and with Donald Trump. His opponent, Abigail Spamberger, is a former CIA agent, and according to a Time Siena poll, she's running about four points behind in a district that has never elected a Democrat. CNN says Virginia's 10th congressional district, which has parts of Loudoun and Fairfax counties, is leaning toward the Democratic candidate, State Senator Jennifer Wexton. She leads by about seven points in the Siena New York Times poll. And that means Republican Congresswoman Barbara Comstock, who currently holds the seat, is in trouble. Barbara Comstock might as well be Barbara Trumpstock. Donald Trump is against expanding Medicaid Especially in a district which was previously solidly Republican, but voted against Trump by extremely wide margins. Comstock is probably the most vulnerable Republican congresswoman in the country. Republican Congressman Tom Garrett won't be running to keep his seat in Virginia's 5th district, which contains Charlottesville and other parts of Central and Southern Virginia. The Republican running to replace him, Denver Riggleman, 
served in the Air Force, and is a business owner. While CNN lists this seat as likely Republican, the latest New York Times Siena poll indicates Democratic challenger Leslie Cockburn has tightened the race, and she leads by about 1% in that poll, which is well within the margin of error. Make sure to keep up with WVCW's coverage of the midterms from 7 to 10 p.m. on election night. You can listen at WVCW.org or on the WVCW radio app. For WVCW News, I'm Fidel Alasan. Marcus David Peters was a VCU graduate. He was a biology teacher at a local high school. It's called Essex High School. Safia Ahmad is a copy editor for the Commonwealth Times. When he was about 24 years old. On Saturday, she covered a rally for Marcus Peters, an unarmed black man who was shot by police officers in Richmond. On May 14th, he taught a full day of classes at Essex High School, and then he went home. He worked a part-time job at um, the Jefferson Hotel as a security guard. Around 5 p.m., he was seen leaving his house, and then later that evening, he was seen at the Jefferson Hotel. Just a little bit after that, he, he drove off from the Jefferson. He was on Belvedere and apparently was driving kind of recklessly, hit a couple cars, and then was near the on-ramp of I-95 where he lost control of his car and crashed into the tree line on the side. And at that point, a an officer from Richmond Police Department showed up by then. His name is Michael Netanyaki. Marcus Peters got out of the car. He was completely naked. Mel is naked on 95 and he ran out into the highway where cars were coming and he got hit by one of the cars. Male just ran into 95 and got struck. Started rolling around. Can I get him ASAP? Clearly disoriented, kind of yelling stuff. 427, male seems to be mentally unstable as we speak. And then he came back off the highway and started running towards the officer. Stay in the car! Officer had a taser ready. He shot it once. Back the fuck up! Put the taser down or I'll kill you. I'll deploy. But it didn't work. I might have tried it a couple times, but it didn't work. And so then he used his gun and he shot Peters twice. At that time, he was the only officer on the scene. He called for backup. Some other officers came just a little while after he shot Peters, and medics arrived a little later and took Peters to the hospital, and he died later that night. And do we know whether Peters was armed or unarmed? He was completely naked at the scene, and he had nothing in his hand, so he was unarmed. So what was the public reaction when all this happened? The family, first of all, came out and spoke a lot, and that kind of incited a lot of public reaction as well. They were very, very angry at the whole situation, and they have been asking for a lot of justice in the name of Marcus Peters because they've claimed that the whole situation was because Marcus was suffering from a mental health crisis at the time, and that the man that, you know, climbed out of the car naked and ran into the street and charged at the officer is not the person that 
they, you know, knew and loved. And they've been kind of demanding justice. And that's been the reaction of, I believe, a lot of citizens in Richmond. It's been a very sticky situation because a lot of Richmond officials have not wanted to comment on it. Following the shooting, the officer was put on a paid administrative leave. As the investigation went on, they released the body cam footage of the officer, and they also released a test that showed that Marcus had drugs in his system. At the time, it was THC and Ritalin, according to those tests. And on the basis of those two things, the the Commonwealth attorney, Michael Herring, declared the situation a justifiable homicide. This past Saturday, there was a National March for Justice and Reformation, which was held in the name of Marcus David Peters. He was unarmed. Unarmed. In the middle of the day, off a busy highway, a high school biology teacher gunned down. The march started at the Siegel Center, and the reason for that was because Marcus graduated from the Siegel Center. They gathered everybody there, and they gave a few speeches, and then they started marching. They marched towards the Jefferson Hotel, which was the last place that Marcus was seen before he was killed, other than the scene. And then they marched to their end point, which was the Richmond Police Department. And what were people asking for um, with yes. this march? Amnesty International, I talked to a couple people from there, and they mentioned that they have five demands. One that they really emphasize, and it's called a civilian review board. Basically, the concept is that there's a group of people who are representative of you know, the city's population that make decisions about certain controversial topics like such, rather than maybe just a group of elites or the Richmond officials or the Richmond Police Department itself or etc. And they really, really emphasize that. Everyone I talked to kept talking about a civilian review board. But I mean, in general, what they want is justice, like, like the name of the march is justice and reformation, you know? They want black and brown bodies to not be at a lower level than the rest of the bodies in the United States of America. Young Americans are leaving organized religion in droves. According to a poll from earlier this year by the Public Religion Research Institute, the number of Americans aged 18 to 29 who have no religious affiliation tripled in the last 30 years to almost 40%. I had this in mind when I talked to the Commonwealth Times' managing editor, Georgia Gein, and opinions editor, Caitlin Barbieri. Caitlin recently wrote a column titled, Giving Sight to Blind Faith about why she stopped practicing Catholicism. And Georgia recently wrote an article titled Drawn to the Occult about some young people who left religion and are turning to alternative methods. Can you explain to me what uh, your column is about this week? Yeah, of course. So my column is about my relationship with the Catholic Church. I was raised Catholic and I was confirmed and baptized and did the whole thing. But then as I've gotten older, I've strayed away from the Catholic Church. It is not something I'm really passionate about anymore. I really don't identify as a Catholic at all because of how strict it is and the rules and the guidelines. I like what it stands for in the morality and 
kind of the idea of religion, but I just don't like how it's carried out and the practice of being, I don't know, the practice of being Catholic just isn't something that I can get behind because it's not something I think is a good practice. I remember being really young, like eight years old, and thinking I was going to hell because, like, I seriously thought I was going to go to hell because I used bad words like frick and heck and punched my brother. (laughs) And I feel like just looking back on that, anything that made me think I was going to be in this, like, eternal suffering at the age of eight just isn't a healthy environment and it's not a constructive environment. I mean, being... The teachings of my Sunday school teachers didn't motivate me to be a better person. They just brought me stress. Um, how about the, the the scandal with the Catholic Church and um, the priests with the young people? Did that affect you at all? Yeah, that definitely affected me because I always felt like from my perspective of what it is to be Catholic in the Catholic Church, it was very strict. Like if you get divorced you're going to hell. If you do anything bad, you're going to hell. And then you find out that these priests are molesting kids and they're supposed to be the ones that are enforcing the word of God. And also, what does that say about just God and his people? It just felt like it's not something I can get behind as a whole. The whole religion is something that is so corrupted and so skewed from the original purpose, which I believe is to just be a good person. And... It's just not something that I can be a part of or identify with. I actually, when you talk about Sunday school, I, uh, I wasn't really brought up on any kind of religion, but my parents would take us in and out of like a Presbyterian church service or Sunday school or Sunday school and um, vacation Bible camp or whatever it's called. And I remember the first time I ever went to Sunday school, the woman who was leading it taught us the story of Noah's Ark. And I burst into tears because I was like, God killed all the animals. And I could not handle that. So, yeah, (laughs) I think, yeah, I definitely have been kind of turned off from Mm -hmm. it for a long time. Because just from a young age, I did not like the kind of culture that comes with organized religion, especially Mm -hmm. in the South. I feel like it's it can actually be kind of judgy. And I didn't like that. Yeah, and from the brief, from the brief, like, studying of the Bible that I have done, the First Testament is wild. God hates everything in the First Testament. He's super violent, or I should gender God. But they're super, um, they're super violent and angry, and they kill everything. And, I mean, the whole thing with the seven, the seven plagues in Egypt, that is so dark and so fucked up. I'm sorry, so messed up. Um, Georgia, can you talk to me about the article you wrote? Because in that article, those people also turn away from religion. And can you tell me where that leads them? Yeah, for sure. So I wrote an article um, in last week's issue of the CT interviewing people who are involved with alternative spiritual practices um, with kind of focus on witchcraft specifically. And a lot of the people I had talked to leading up to this story and people featured in the story, um, were involved in a type of organized religion prior to getting into their spiritual practice, such as witchcraft, um, that they do now. And um, I just think that a lot of people have 
been turning away from organized religion um, because, you know, some people feel that it's been used to, it's been kind of weaponized to discriminate against a lot of different groups. Um, It's kind of a limitation on how people lead their lives. And for that reason, um, and just they don't like, you know, for instance, things that have happened in the Catholic Church, it really turns them away from it. And um, I think just nowadays people are looking for a different kind of fulfillment that's a little bit more individualized and mm-hmm. has a little bit more freedom. And um, I think that alternative spiritual practices um, just, you know, it can be, you know, using tarot cards or it can be praying to a different kind of God. I think that offers a lot more of what people are looking for nowadays. I was going to say, I kind of talked about that in my article, how even though like I don't identify with the Catholic Church anymore, in a lot of ways, I still do desire to have something to believe in. Mm-hmm. And so I can understand and identify with that like need to have something else like witchcraft or like worshiping another God, because I think that's still an important part of mm-hmm. just living and having something to believe in, having some kind of belief system. In my story, I was looking um, a lot at paganism and what falls under the umbrella of paganism, which paganism, interestingly enough, I found this out from one of my sources, was a label that the Romans put onto Europeans who practiced earth-based religions, and it literally means country dwellers originally. And so basically, I don't think there's an official label to it, but the way I looked at it for this story was just anything that isn't from an organized religion, especially things that are like witchcraft, for instance, is very diverse. There's people who practice a lot of different things. And also the fact that people pull from a lot of different cultures when they're engaging in these practices. And it's just so diverse and there's such a range of what people do. That's why I thought that the term alternative spiritual practices that don't follow an organized religion or have a set code of, of beliefs or things like that, I think that's a more appropriate label. Tillman, right to William. Dariante Jenkins. In the corner for three. It's good! VCU men's basketball is set for its second season under head coach Michael Rhodes, and it hasn't been the smoothest transition for the Rams so far. In Rhodes' first year, the Rams missed out on the NCAA tournament for the first time since 2010. Now the Rams have made some marquee additions, like guard Marcus Evans, who comes from Rice, and the return of Michael Gilmore, a forward who transferred back to VCU after a year at Florida Gulf Coast. I talked with Zach Joachim, executive editor at the Commonwealth Times, and Ben Malikoff, sports director at WVCW, about what fans can expect from the Rams this season. Check it out. So I want to ask you guys where the Rams are in terms of their recent history and um, in terms of the program. Well, it's definitely a lot different team than we've seen in the past. Last year, we had some really experienced seniors with Johnny Williams and Justin Tillman. And this year, we have a lot more freshmen and just two, technically, just two seniors on the team this upcoming season. So it's definitely a new look for this really young VCU Rams team. Comparing it to years past, I would say that this team is definitely looking more athletic a little bit and a little bit bigger than last year. 
I'm expecting hopefully a, a little bit of a better run. Yeah, tons of turnover. Obviously, I think that for years now, Ram Nation has been looking for more stability. Obviously, three different coaches in the past five years now. So it's good to see Rhodes have a lot more of his guys here. You would think that that can facilitate him running his system more. You know, and we'll see more of that infamous Havoc style that we all love to watch so much. I, I think it's an exciting time as far as really seeing him be able to, to get his system going with, like I said, with his guys on the court and not just trying to adjust his style of play to, to players that other coaches recruited. Obviously, we're all a little down after last year, the NCAA tournament streak being snapped, but I think that there's a good chance this year for us to get back on track. So tell me a little bit about what went wrong last year and how this became a team that had made the tournament for like seven years like that or something like that. And how, how did they not make it last year? I think it goes back to a little bit of what Zach was just saying and how a lot of these players were recruited for different coaches in a completely different system. Now we have Mike Rhodes implementing what he wants to do, recruiting the players that he wants on his team. The, everyone here now is, is guys that Mike Rhodes wants and needs to work his system. And com- coming into his second year now, Mike Rhodes has already started developing that plan and already starting developing these younger guys to uh, really start fitting what he wants done on the court. Yeah, I think the fact that our most experienced guys, you know, Michael Gilmore and Isaac Van, come to mind are transfers. Right now on the roster, uh, Rhodes has really had to piece together his team over the past couple of years, and, and I think that's what happened last year is, is just you, you can only expect it to happen so fast, you know, that all these new faces coalesce together and, and learn how to work together. It was just a new environment for everybody involved. Um, and I think that these guys aren't used to the expectations that come with playing at VCU too. I mean, a lot of the time, pundits will say it's unfair for Ram Nation to expect an NCAA tournament every year. Um, but ever since the Final Four run, we've been able to keep that streak going. And, and that's really become the status quo at VCU. And for a quote-unquote mid-major, I mean, that, that's a really high bar to set. And so, you know, I don't want to say it's unfair to the players because I hold those expectations as a, you know, as a VCU student and fan. I expect us to get to the NCAA tournament. We're picked to finish seventh in the A-10 conference this year right now. I mean, but I think most people at VCU balk at that, you know, and, and they go, how is that? Is that really how the rest of the conference sees us right now? And so a return to the status quo is what everybody's looking for this year. Um, you know, a, a top three or four finish in the A-10 and a run of the NCAA tournament. And I think that with everybody getting comfortable under Rhodes' system, him having more of his guys in there, that it is more realistic than it was last year to have that expectation. So why do you think they're ranked seventh then, or predicted to finish seventh? Well, I mean, it just has to go back to uh, probably just how the things how things ended last year with the Rams and now losing one of the best players in the A-10, Justin Tillman, top scorer in the league, a guy that uh, possibly could have gone to the, in the NBA and now is playing overseas. And a lot of people are looking at VCU with just three and four-star talent. You know, a lot of three-star new recruits coming in, one four-star with Vince Williams. And people look at those guys and see them as average players at best and kind of start to look past that talent. But in reality, VCU has been getting a lot of the, in the past, especially with Johnny Williams and Justin Tillman, have been getting that three-star talent and making the most out of those types of opportunities. Something that Coach Rhodes was talking about earlier in the week was that these three-star players are always overlooked by the big networks like ESPN and CBS, those guys who rank the VCU team every year. They're always overlooked. And one thing VCU does is able to take that talent that is overlooked and make it into something more on the court. 
Yeah, I think from an objective perspective, that that projection is understandable. I mean, we finished middle of the conference last year and lost two starters, one of them an all-conference player. I think that that projection is kind of taking into account Marcus Evans' health and the uncertainty that's surrounding it. I mean, he's an all-conference, was an all-conference USA player. His two years at Rice averaged over 20 points a game. So, I mean, if he, it's a big if, but if he's healthy and we have that leading scorer in the backcourt, which is really a, a big facet that the team was lacking last year, was a dynamic scoring presence in the backcourt, I think that that projection could be low and we could finish a lot higher than that. Like I said, hopefully in the top four and get a double buy in the A-10 tournament. But for, again, from an objective perspective, we lost two of our best players, one of them an all-conference talent, and it's understandable, particularly with how much the coaching turnover has affected this team the last two years. So where do you guys think we'll finish this year from an objective perspective? If you can do it. I'm trying here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I um, I think... When I saw the seventh place ranking in the A-10, I was I was shocked, just like other VCU fans and just people in the media were. When we look around the A-10, the top team, Rhode Island, lost four to five of their starters, four seniors. So a lot of things are going to be messed up in the A-10 this year, and I really think that a lot of VCU's talent is overlooked. But if we are being realistic, like you were saying, there are some injuries on the squad and some really inexperienced young players. I see this VCU team finishing in that fourth or fifth spot in the A-10. Yeah, same. No, I, I see him finishing hopefully third or fourth. Um, St. Louis is really good. Um, I don't think a lot of people realize how talented that roster is. They got a new coach a couple of years ago and had some really promising games last year. I think they're picked to finish like first or second right now. St. Joseph's is also going to be really good. They return a bunch of guys. That turnover with Rhode Island certainly kind of throws the conference in limbo because there's not a clear top dog this year like there was last year. You always got to look out for Davidson, but they lost um, they lost Gibbs and Aldridge, their best two players. So who knows what that turnover is going to be like. Richmond has some young, talented guys, and that's obviously always a tough matchup for us. I think it's pretty muddled in the middle. I think that you know anybody who's picked between like eighth and second you know, could be up there. I think it's pretty clear cut that St. Louis is going to be a top team in the conference. But aside from that, you know, all of those teams, like I said, U of R, Davidson, VCU, St. Joseph's, um, among others, the, could finish in any of those spots um, in the middle there. It's really going to be, I think, a tight competition for those two through four spots to try and get the double buy in the A-10 tournament. So what about in the NCAA tournament? Do we, do we make the tournament? It's really hard to tell this early on. A lot of the early predictions from the top networks are saying no. The A-10 is potentially saying no with that seventh place finish. But since we don't know how the A-10 is looking out, we don't know what's going to happen in that A-10 tournament yet, I say it is possible. It definitely is a possibility. I don't want to give a definitive yes or no yet. I I'm not 100% sure. But I think that it is a good chance for VCU to potentially, if they don't, win the A-10, which is, a, which is a lot tougher. They can come into that A-10 tournament and pull some things out of the bag and potentially win that tournament and make the NCAA tournament. Yeah, almost all of the, the A-10 first team from last year is gone. Tillman, Gibbs, Aldridge, all those guys from Rhode Island. So it's it's really tough to predict. And the A-10 tournament is a dogfight every year. Those anyone, like I said, I think St. Louis is a pretty clear-cut top of the conference team. But aside from that, two through eight, it's tough to predict what those seeds are going to be this early. I don't want to say the A-10 is a one-bid league because traditionally we've been a two-to-three-bid league, getting three teams in last year. But 
Bonaventure is not going to be nearly as good as they were last year. I think that's a team that takes a, a big step back this year, um, even though they're, I think they're picked to finish fourth or fifth above VCU right now. But we might be a one-bid league this year, and so winning that tournament you know, might be the key to getting into the NCAA tournament. And like Ben said, I mean, it's just so tough this far out to try and predict that. I'm not sure we're going to get any at-large bids. And so to be realistic about it, the prospects for us making us being VCU with the NCAA tournament this year are not looking good at the moment. But again, like I said, I think Marcus Evans' health is is the big question here because he could be the best player in the conference if he's healthy all year. You know, Conference USA is pretty comparable to the A-10. The A-10 certainly deeper, but I mean, the teams at the top of Conference USA compete with some of the best teams in the A-10 year in and year out. So he's averaging 20 plus points a game as a freshman and a sophomore. Got to sit out a year. He's comfortable under Rhodes. He's been with him three years now, including the year that he sat out. So I mean, we could have the best player in the conference, certainly the best scorer in the conference. So I think that if he's healthy for a majority of the year, then we could rack up enough wins in the A-10 to try and sneak our way into an at-large bid, even if we don't win the A-10 tournament. Um, Ben, can you talk to me a little bit about what Marcus Evans brings to this team? Evans just brings a dynamic offensive flow that can really help get VCU going. Like you said, Zach, he was really good under that road system at Rice, and now he's gone to sit out for a whole year. He's, he's dealt with some injuries, so we're yet to see how that's going to play into his game. But Evans really brings in an offense that is fast-paced and what Rhodes wants. He was averaging, I think, 19.6 points per game at Rice. It's just really impressive offensive player, and... Hopefully he'll be able to do just as well on the defensive side of the ball. I think he's also going to help the rookies out with, or sorry, the freshmen out with dishing the ball out, getting some assists here and there. But I think he's really going to help this offensive get a really smooth flow. So who would you guys say is going to be sort of a breakout player? I think Michael Gilmore is definitely an X factor for this team. He's the tallest player on the roster at 6'10", and we don't pass him. I mean, Marcus Santos Silva is a good bruiser down low, but he's only 6'6", I believe, so we don't really have a true rim protector. So even if his role is is primarily a defensive presence, I think that Michael Gilmore could be the breakout guy that you're that you're looking for with adding front court depth to a team that that really lacks that. I agree with you on Michael Gilmore also, but bringing back up Marcus Santos Silva, he really impressed last year, especially that one game that I look to when I talk about Marcus Santos Silva was the way he played against Texas and Mo Bamba. He absolutely shut down Mo Bamba when Justin Tillman wasn't getting that same success, and he had a few other games like that. I think Marcus Santos Silva is going to be that key defensive player that is going to help replace Justin Tillman in that box. I think he's going to be a guy that VCU is going to essentially need on defense. He's going to be a guy that VCU absolutely needs to break out. Rhodes loves to run a similar system to what Davidson likes to run with having a a primary guard that's getting 15 to 20 shots up a game like they did with Gibbs for so many years. And I think that that was a huge, a huge deficiency in our system last year because Johnny... Was Jonathan, Jonathan Williams, uh, who's since graduated, was a great distributor, um, but not the kind of guy that you want getting 15 to 20 shots up a game. He's not a pure jump shooter. Um, he excels at finishing by the rim, but he's just not a volume scorer. And Rhodes' system is built to have that primary volume scorer that everything else sort of banks off of. So I, I think that having Marcus healthy this year and being able to run that system that Rhodes wants to offensively could have us take a huge step forward on that side of the ball. So can you guys tell me what the games to watch are, what you would consider the, the must-see games? That Texas game is the game is one of the games that I'm really looking forward to in a game to watch. Just because of how close VCU got to beating them last year, it was re- 
got down to that last minute and VCU just could not hang on against Shaka Smart and that really good team with Mo Bamba who's now on Orlando in the NBA. So that's a, one game looking forward to. Another one, uh, UVA just because they were ranked number one in the nation last year. I believe that they're fifth in the uh, poll this year. So I think VCU can make a, a huge splash just in the in the nation if they um if they're able to beat those two teams. Yeah, to to add on to that, I mean, those are definitely uh, two of the marquee out of conference games that come to mind. That stretch, December fifth to the twenty second, I think it is, right after the Texas and UVA games, we play the College of Charleston and Wichita State. That's four NCAA tournament teams from last year, three of which uh, will be ranked. I'm not sure where Wichita State is, but I mean, year in and year out in the preseason poll and throughout the season, they're up there in the top 15 or top 10. And I know it it sounds blasphemous from a VCU perspective with a a small school like the College of Charleston coming to the Siegel Center, but they might be favored in that game. They won the Colonial last year, gave Auburn a run for their money in the first round of the NCAA tournament, only lost to them by two. Auburn was a four seed, Charleston was a 13. So that stretch will be grueling. I mean, if we can get two of those games, that could go a long ways toward trying to sneak in an at-large bid into the NCAA tournament at the end of the year. Texas and UVA are both on the road. Charleston and Wichita State are at the Siegel Center. So like I said, I mean, if we can get two of those games, you know, I, I think that that could do a lot for our resume come March. You can listen to WVCW's live coverage of VCU basketball at wvcw.org or on the WVCW app. And the Commonwealth Times' coverage throughout the season at commonwealthtimes.org or in the print edition of the Times. One Credit News is produced and edited by me, Fidel Alisson. Special thanks to our guests, Safia Ahmad, Georgia Gein, Caitlin Barbieri, Zach Joachim, and Ben Malikoff. That's it for this week. See you next week.